What does the word intentional mean to you? For me, I mean, I know it's focused, but I'm not, I don't sit still. So for me, it's actually sitting down, you know, folding my hands and forcing myself to think about an actual rational answer, decision, plan to something. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in, and this is episode 274 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Tansom, and today my guest's name is Gina Schaefer, and we're going to be talking about how she went from zero to 13 Ace Hardware stores and why she recently sold the company to her employees via an ESOP. Gina started her career in tech and software until she was laid off, and she decided to do one drastic career change. She went from software to hardware by opening up an Ace Hardware store in her local community. She has since scaled the company up to include 13 stores and over 250 employees. And what was awesome and so intriguing about Gina's story is she integrated her desire to make an impact into her company from the very beginning. Not only did the stores Gina opened bring access to a hardware store where there were no big box shops and extreme need to renovate the communities, Gina and her husband made it a core part of their strategy to hire recovering addicts and provide them a structured place to work and change their lives to become the best version of themselves. And it's so interesting because Gina said that there were, were no franchise hardware stores. And so it was big box shops or nothing. And they really were able to make an impact with the businesses that they were creating. And Gina talks about why she started thinking years in advance about her exit and why she chose an ESOP compared to the other options she explored and how an ESOP fulfilled her desire to enjoy work, create wealth and make an impact. And the reason I'm personally excited about this show is because Gina literally just did it all on purpose from day one. And I'm super excited because she's a living example of how businesses can change lives and make a lasting impact, but also create wealth in the process. It's so fun for me to hear that people are out there making money, but not sacrificing doing good in order to make the money. Gina's story proves that we can make an impact and create wealth if we have a long-term plan in place and we intentionally make choices to stay in tune and stay true to what we believe is right. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Gina. If you want to find out more about how to stay intentional, don't forget to go check out the Intentional Growth online training, which is at arcona.io. And it talks about a lot about how to be as intentional as Gina has been throughout her journey. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Gina. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Gina. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Uh, I'm so looking forward to this. We were just chatting for a couple minutes, and I think we could have probably recorded part of that because uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. Um, I had uh, saw your post on LinkedIn about your ESOP that you just did with your Ace Hardware stores, and Steve Sorkin, who is a, a mutual friend of ours, had liked it, and lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> so. Perfect. I love it. And, uh, you know, God bless the the social media world for various reasons. Let's uh, give the give the listeners a high level overview of where you came from. And then, then we'll go back and we'll unpack the whole story. Sure. Um, well, I, literally where I came from is Ohio. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1993. Which one in Ohio? Uh, Louisville in, Ohio? in northeastern Ohio. Do you know okay. it? My, no, my business partner's out of Dayton. Oh, OK. So I went to school at Wittenberg University in Springfield, which is not far from Dayton. So, oh yeah, nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Lots of like degrees of separation there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I couldn't wait to come to a big city, and I ended up in Washington, and I've I've pretty much been here ever since. I opened um, a hardware store, my first hardware store in 2003. Um, I had moved to a neighborhood that had been uh, destroyed by the riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, it's a beautiful neighborhood, but it had really just 
you know, sat dormant basically after the riots destroyed the neighborhood. And uh, in, around the mid 90s, a lot of people started moving back in because it was cheap. We could get houses here and condos mm-hmm. here that were really affordable. Most of them were boarded up. I was working in the tech industry, basically a tech reject. I kept getting laid off. I think I've heard other listen, other of your uh, interviewees say the same same sort of thing. And I decided one day I wanted to do something very practical. So I was going to go uh, from software to hardware, which is what I did. I opened my first a different store. kind of hardware, right? Like exactly. it's yes. not servers. That's, that's <laughs> hammers and nails. Opened my first location. Um, Ace Hardware is a co-op, as you know. So we did some research with the various co-op options, uh, joined Ace. And my husband joined the business about three months after I opened. And we've been business partners ever since. 13 locations, almost 300 employees, Washington, Baltimore, and then a couple of the suburban areas. Yeah. It's so, I mean, that, yeah, there's, and that was super easy and it happened in a couple of years, right? Yeah, piece of cake. <laughs> yeah, piece of cake. Everybody should do it. Um, so, you know, why, why I, I want to go back to the researching and the co-op because I want to get into like a very bunch of topics kind of just to set the stage of like why ESAP from other options when you finally made the transition, but then you integrated things like the um, hardware recovery program, which is also tied to some of the stuff you talk about. And, you know, I want to tie into a lot of the whys and your culture stuff, but like even before any of that, like, you know, going from software and you're doing this research, why did you start looking at co-ops? Why hardware stores? And, you know, how did the origination story actually take place? Well, hardware started, really, I needed a job. I mean, it's as basic as that. And there were so many streets and houses in this neighborhood. It's Logan Circle in Washington uh, that were boarded up. And when I moved into this neighborhood, I I actually cried. My real estate agent said, you have to buy in Logan Circle. It's the only place you can afford. And of course, now she's the smartest woman I know because she is the reason that I became, you know, an owner in this amazing neighborhood. So um, I moved in and got involved with my, we were dating then. So my then boyfriend uh, got involved with the community association and the community association's sole purpose at that point was to get rid of the drug dealers um, and try and attract residents and businesses to this neighborhood. And so we would hear what was going on and what people were asking for. And all of us wanted to be able to dine and shop and recreate right outside of our front door. I mean, just like every strong urban community wants. Um, we didn't want to get in the car and go to the suburbs to go to a big box store to buy home improvement needs, which was the dire need at that time because of all of the boards on all of the windows. And so um, I... You know, I'd like to think it was just this lightning bolt that hit me that said you should open a hardware store. But truthfully, for about a year, I had been going to these meetings, listening to people say, gosh, I wish we had a hardware store. Um, We hear that in lots of ways in our lives. Right. I wish somebody would do this. I wish somebody would do that. And one day I just said, why can't it be me? And I, I reached out. Like I said, we reached out to. So there are no hardware franchises. A lot of people don't know that. So all of the independent hardware stores in the country um, either buy from a co-op or they buy from a wholesaler. And there's really no, you have to buy from somewhere, just like any other retailer. When you buy from a co-op, you have a lot of support that you don't necessarily get from a wholesaler. So just as as an example, the use of the Ace brand, some shared marketing expenses. I think Home Depot's marketing uh, TV expense is something, at one point it was like $300 million a year in TV ads. (laughs) ACES is $30 million a year. It was, that's been several years. But my point is, is it's very small, but it's a lot bigger than Gina Schaefer's TV budget would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So co-op, we have a chance to aggregate purchasing power so that we can buy better, um, advertising power, training opportunities, all of those things that come along with being part of a larger organization that give us as independent uh, retailers a competitive advantage or at least a leg up. So interesting. Okay, so um, I, w- I would love for you to give um, a quick overview of like what a co-op is and a little context behind this, Gina, is I got a really good college buddy who is now um, uh, uh, up in the middle upper management of, is it NIACS or NICS? Um, Vern. Is, it's, it's this big, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a big co-op and he wrote this book called Rewired about the co-op model learned yeah. a bunch about it over the last like handful of months. And I would like, honestly, I was so ignorant from it. It was just shocking. So give us a little bit of your, your definition and kind of the, the mechanics behind it. Cause I think it's super interesting. Sure. Um, it's, it, I mean, you're right. It's fascinating. And a lot of people don't know about it. In fact, most of our funding ever since that first location, ever since our second location, we have banked with national cooperative bank. So um, up until the seventies, banks would not loan money to cooperatives because there's not one single owner. It's a collective Mm -hmm. ownership model. And so banks wouldn't fund co-ops, therefore they couldn't grow. And most people have heard of like 
housing cooperatives or grocery cooperatives, farming cooperatives, um, et cetera. And then there are things like purchasing co-ops, which is what ACE is, what True Value was, Do It Best, if you're familiar with Do It Best. And so the federal government chartered National Cooperative Bank so that co-ops could gain more footing in the corporate world and be a good viable option. You know, think about today kind of the fight that B Corps have to get national standings. That was what was happening in the co-op world. So at its foundation, a purchasing co-op is a collective purchasing tool for independent retailers. It gives ACE the opportunity to go to a vendor like Milwaukee, for example, or Black & Decker or DAP and negotiate on behalf of all of the ACE retailers so that we don't have to go do that individually and those vendors don't have to put up with us individually. Mm-hmm. So I often tell my new hires, if, if I went to Black & Decker and I said I want to buy some drills, I'm only going to need 100 drills, right? And they're going to charge me X price. Mm-hmm. If Home Depot goes to Black & Decker, they're going to want right. thousands of drills and they're going to get a much better price. Mm-hmm. ACE does that negotiating on our behalf on behalf of about 5,000 ACE retailers. So and that's- the ACE retailers are the owners of the co-op, right? Correct. So it's so interesting. Correct. Like the customers are actually the, the owners. The cus- yes, exactly. So when we, um, every time we open a new store, we basically get another share, um, another membership share in the cooperative. And so we are the collective owners. Now there is a corporate office um, mm-hmm. in Oak Brook, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and they have all of the requisite corporate departments, but they effectively work for all of us members. The other interesting thing about a co-op that a lot of people don't know is that cooperatives do not have to pay taxes on profit that they dividend back to their members. So at the end of the year, I get a dividend from Ace Hardware that's um, it's based on how much I buy from them. So the more loyalty I, I show the co-op, the bigger my dividend, and then they don't pay taxes on that as profit. So they can use, so for example, I served on the Ace Corporate Board for nine years, which is a whole other conversation. But we um, implemented an SAP software package, took us about five or six years. It was $75 million, multi-millions of dollars Mm -hmm. at the time to do this program. So the cooperative had the ability to use profits for that kind of corporate advancement. But then anything after that, they dividend back to us, no no taxes paid on it. So it's a really great business model. Well, and like you're just getting your customers excited to constantly do business with you. And that's where like I learned and I won't go down this rabbit hole too much, but that uh, it's NIACS or something like that. But essentially they're do like a technology provider for energy companies. And then I realized that like, like as you was telling the story, I'm like, oh, my God, the people that they're helping implement are the owners of the business. So they're like it's working so with how to design. Yeah, I'm like, this is ridiculous. And so I'm curious, kind of going back to, you know, as you decided to go with ACE and and why did you decide to like how like that first store and like, I mean, you own how, like, as you said, 300 employees now, and there's like more than 13 stores, I'm assuming. But like, how did you decide to become a, like an entrepreneur instead of just a store owner? Like, and how did that conversation take place? Well, I, you know, I think we'll get to a little bit of my, the ESOP and exit strategy in a, in a bit, but it's interesting when I opened that first location, I was probably in business for about six or seven months when people started coming in and saying, when are you going to expand? When are you going to expand? Oh. Which is super exciting and, and really terrifying, right? I was, I was fairly young. I was super green. I mean, Ryan, I didn't know. I had worked in retail once in college and it was like a summer stint for two months in a jewelry store or something. I mean, mm-hmm. I had no retail experience, no HR experience, no hardware experience. So I was really just trying to, I was treading water, trying to figure out how to run this business. And people started saying, when are you going to expand? We had letter writing campaigns from other neighborhoods in the city, like physical letters that would show up in the mail. We had phone calls. We had lots of newspaper articles. It was really, really exciting and also terrifying because there was a lot of pressure for us to, to get big. And I don't know in hindsight, if I ever planned on having more than one, I know my personality, I would have gotten bored fairly quickly But the fact that people immediately started asking was crazy, you know, Mm -hmm. now that I think Mm -hmm. about it. So we, um, the second store, I was actually working as a cashier at my, at the first location one day and a guy walked in. Yep. I was, and I love, I love being a cashier. I had a guy walk in and he said, Hey, I have a building two miles across town near Georgetown university. Would you be interested in looking at it? And I was like, what the hell? And so I went to see it. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. I went to see it and I signed a lease. Yeah, probably a month later. I mean, it wasn't a long negotiation process. And so two years to the day that we opened the first one, we opened the second one. By this point, my husband had joined me. And um, and then we opened one a year after that. There was so much demand in the city. You know, the big boxes weren't in Washington at that point. They, they okay. didn't like the city. 
Um, they couldn't fit in the, the small neighborhoods with the row house style stores. Um, mm-hmm. So they couldn't get the footprint that they wanted. And they just they didn't see Washington as a viable market, which hmm. I find shocking. Ace actually didn't see it as a viable market either. They thought I was crazy. And they also didn't think I would, I would be successful. But there's there at the time was it's we've grown tremendously 650,000 people here and like three hardware stores in the whole whole town three tiny hardware stores not even why? like why what's the what's the deal behind that i don't know you know like historically there was a crime in dc and it wasn't the, the the magical place that i think it is now but there were still lots of people with plenty of money with plenty of you know fixer upper challenges mm-hmm. um i find it really shocking now i do um, same thing happened in Baltimore. When we opened in the Baltimore market, not one big box within the Baltimore city limits. There still is not a big box hardware store. There's a Target, right, I think right. a Walmart, mm-hmm. but no big, no big box hardware stores. And when we opened, I think there were two, three, three mom and pop hardware stores. That's it. In the whole city. Also 650,000 people. So interesting. And, and I, and I, as we get into your growth journey, cause I, like you said, we're going to get into the, the exit and why you chose that and how, how that all came to be. But I want to talk about some of the stuff that, you know, as you're growing, Gina, I mean, you know, after putzing around on your, on your um, speakers page and some of the things that you talk about from like, you, you know, the, the culture was such a huge thing. And I don't know, like where along this journey, did you shift your mindset to say, Hey, instead of being a store owner, I'm going to be building something that's beyond me, you know, from the, and, and you started ingraining some of these things like the hardware recovery or then the shopping local, you know, was there a point where then, then you started to like grasp on and say, Hey, that I'm going to be more intentional with these focuses or were those things kind of slamming you in front of the face too? Like you, you're like, Oh, that this is just a thing. I'm kind of curious on the shift of how that, how you started ingraining some of those themes and be, 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 uh, be free to, to elaborate on those themes and what you were doing. Sure. I, you know, it's always great when you can pinpoint an exact moment when you have this epiphany and you become a real business owner. <laughs> I, mean, I sense a little sarcasm in there, right? <laughs> well, I might have one or two of those, but I don't have many of those. So maybe there was some sarcasm. I do remember. So, I, you know, I read the e-myth early on. Somebody handed me the e-myth. And I, I, you probably feel the same way. You can read a business book. And if you just take away one little nugget that sticks with you, that book has served its purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And when I read the working on your business, not in your business, it's stuck. I have a terrible memory. And that just stuck in my brain. And I realized that I could love being a cashier, which I do, or I could love stocking shelves, which I find really uh, fun. Or I could figure out how to grow a hardware empire in a city that desperately needs hardware. And when I made that mentality shift after reading that book, I would say it was probably full speed ahead. I was, however, smart enough to know that I was still an idiot. (laughs) And I say that, I mean, with all respect, because I know we've built a great business. I immediately hired a business coach to help me figure out what the next steps had to be. And one of those next steps corresponded with needing to put a manager in charge of the second location. So a lot of, um, I can pick on hardware because it's my industry. It's an old, established, family, generational kind Mm -hmm. of business. I didn't have a dad or a grandpa who handed me my store or sold me their store. So I had to figure it out without those guys telling me uh, what to do. And I I knew that I couldn't be in two places at once. So at the time, this would have been around 2005, 2006, the ACE statistic was that about 50, I hope no one quotes me on the the percentages, but about 53% of the store owners only had one location. Nothing wrong with that. that Single store, single store operations. And if you talk to a lot of those folks, they would say, well, I I can't because I don't trust anybody to run a second store or I can't be in two places at once. I mean, nobody Mm -hmm. can't, right? It's physically impossible. (laughs) And so I really took to heart the fact that if I was going to expand, I had to figure out how not to be in two places at once, but to believe that I could still make this work. And, and again, it's great in hindsight, the, the concept of recovery hardware had started in 2003 there is a uh, drug addiction clinic right down the street from my hardware store. And a young man came to my store one day and he said, I'm from the clinic down the street. Um, I've been clean from drugs. I think it was like two months. It was, he was very early in his recovery and he asked me for a job. And I said, I I don't need anybody. I'm not hiring. Long story short, he ended up working for me and we're friends to this day. And it's wonderful. And he just opened a restaurant, (laughs) but I had, I trusted him from the very beginning. There were a lot of things that hiring somebody from what would be considered a non-trustworthy background 
putting him into a position, watching him grow, watching him fail, watching him leave. He left after 11 months and said he'd never talk to me again. We were a terrible place to work. I mean, this whole, we joke about it now, but what it made me realize is that you could trust somebody from a very different background than my, you know, small town Ohio background. And if you trusted who you hired, you could be in two places at once because someone else would be there for you. And so that's a weird example because uh, Shane didn't end up being that person at that point. But what happened is he left mad and started telling everyone at the clinic to go see that lady at the hardware store. And I didn't know this. And so people just started showing up asking me for a job. And so I hired. Wait, his- wait a second. So he's pissed. He leaves he's and so he's, bi- he's bitching about you. But yet everybody yeah. is coming to re- apply for job. I, yeah. wh- what's, where's the where's my disconnect here? <laughs> he called it. What did he say to me? He said, um, he said, I left in a self-righteous indignation, I think is what he calls it. But <laughs> when you go through, when you go through recovery, you have a lot of time to reflect and probably mm-hmm. a lot of therapy. And he had a lot of time to think about the foundation that he got or the, the safety that he felt by having a place to go every day. And regardless of how much Mark and my husband's name is Mark, remar- regardless of how much we sucked as business owners at that point, because we were just so clueless, mm-hmm. we gave him a safe place to come every day where he really was happy. Mm-hmm. And so he left to just really work through all of the other important things he had to work through. Yep. But he started telling all of his friends that he had this 11 months of support at the hardware store and oh. it's called a recovery job. Yeah. Um, and your recovery job for someone coming out of a rehabilitation uh, program is your first job that you get out of recovery. And it can really make or break your recovery. I figured that out, you know, mm-hmm. in the years since And so he was telling his friends, hey, go see Gina for your recovery job. And so he sent me Mark, who actually is an executive on my team now. Mark sent me Scott, who ran a store of mine for 10 years. Scott sent me Brian, who struggles to be clean and lives in South Carolina now, but we're friends to this day and on and on and on. So to go back to your question, I I feel like I'm talking. I love the context. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We realized that we could be across town if we built this foundation of trust. So I hired a business coach and I said, how do you build a foundation of trust? And everyone in the world probably knew this at the time, but you really just solidify your core values. You take what you're already doing, you articulate them, put them on paper, you train to them, you hold people accountable to them. And then as you grow, you move those core values with you throughout, you know, all of the other locations. So this is, a, I think, a great example. The the um, fourth store that we opened was is, was in Baltimore. Baltimore is 30 minutes from Washington, 30 miles from Washington, about an hour drive. I wasn't going to be there every day. Hell, I wasn't even going to be there every week. No, yeah, you wouldn't want to even if you could. No, absolutely not. But we had these core values in place. The manager who we were sending up there to open those stores with us knew how we liked to operate. He lived and embodied our, our principles and values. Hell, he, he actually probably helped us create them. Um, He was pretty early in that process. So we felt very comfortable when he went to Baltimore that he already knew what we expected of him. You're going to hire people in recovery. He was in recovery himself. He got it. You're going to embed yourself in the community and act like the owner of the store. He actually did have a small ownership stake in the store. So uh, that was like legitimately true. Um, You're going to hold community events. You, you know, on and on and on. All of the things that we thought were making us successful in in Washington, um, he was able to take up the train line, um, in to Baltimore and help us grow. That's amazing. So I, I, uh, I have interviewed so many people that, um, they struggle doing that with it, like the, the trusting in someone to be able to take and run their company or their vision or division. And I mean, these are like highly successful, highly paid people that don't have a recovery background that they're not trusting. Right. <laughs> and, right. I actually, and I actually interviewed this woman, Gina, her name is Allie Taylor, and she's got a PhD in uh, the psychology of business owners. And like literally she, through her dissertation, she, she found that the ability to let go had like will literally double your company because like when she saw people let go and like actually let go of control. So yeah. like, how, how do you like... Any words of, uh, or like words from your experience of like how to deal with that issue just as a control freak business owner that's trying to let other people take and carry part of their vision? 
So Mark and I talk about this a lot. I think at our core, he and I are both very trusting people. So that's very helpful. I mean, and and I say (laughs) this with no disrespect for somebody who's not trusting. You have to find a therapist or a coach if you're not trusting, because you're right, you can't grow. And that's not a trait that you, you know, you might've had a horrible past or you might've had people do terrible things to you. I, I get why people don't trust other, other people, but if you want to scale or at least be successful in, in some way, you have to figure out how to emotionally get past that. I used to say that if I had hired the wrong, if I'd hired people I didn't trust, I'd hired the wrong people. So I think there is something to that too, but it's, it's really a balance of, mm-hmm. can you make yourself trust people? Can you get to a point where you are trusting? And then can you learn how to hire people who you trust so that you know you've done it right? Interestingly enough, one of my uh, long-term employees who was, who's uh, in recovery sat me down one day and he said, you can't hire people anymore. And I was like, what? I'm the boss. You know, what do you mean you can't hire people? I hired you. And he said, you hire everybody and it's not always good. <laughs> so I, I, say, I say that to say there's a, there's a downside to that, right? That um, I was fortunate enough to build a culture where an employee trusted enough that he could say that to me, that he could say no more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I no, do it think does. It, it does. And I think there's, you know, for a different topic, for a different day, but I think the whole trust thing, it's a, like, I, I I'm similar to you where like, I'll trust and then, and then get screwed. And then I'll go, oh, that didn't work out. But like, I mean, honestly, I have so people like, oh, you have so many amazing people around you. And I'm like, it's because I went through a lot of really not so good ones. And these are the ones that stuck, but it's like, to me, the process is still worth it to find the good people. I don't know. And maybe you could get for cynical sure. over the way, but it's so um, true. So then one of the other things that you had uh, spoken a lot about is the community and the urban living and buying local and explain how that theme arose throughout your the, the journey as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, Washington is a lot like any other city in that each neighborhood is kind of like a small town, right? They have, we have main streets through each of the neighborhoods and the neighborhoods have a strong name and identity. And, you know, you mm-hmm. don't cross town to this other neighborhood. You think this one is better, worse, sketchy, whatever. So I grew up in a small town with a strong main street. I like to travel to towns with strong main streets. And, and often if I'm giving a presentation, I'll say to my, my audience, you know, close your eyes and think about a place that has a main street that has affected you in some way. Um, it might be a, a favorite vacation spot, a place where you've, where you've lived. Now, imagine it all gone. Mm. And I, I mean, I get like, I don't know, my hair stands up, I guess. Uh-huh. Every time I say that, imagine it's all gone. Because that's why I get up and fight against big boxes every day or antitrust laws, whatever it is, because I want our communities to still have a vibrancy and a safety that a main street provides. And if that's Mm -hmm. gone, I mean, maybe I'm just not smart enough to envision it, but what's left? Well, a bunch of stock buybacks and (laughs) I'm sorry, I will hold back from my from my rant. (laughs) That's probably no. a topic for another day too. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. But no. But that's how that's how that started to become really important to me. I mean, I really believe even in big cities, we can maintain um, a community, <clears throat> excuse me, a community based feel um, and visually um, a main street because neighborhoods really are safer when storefronts aren't dark and when people mm-hmm. can walk in and meet the person running the store or the person at the cash register. So that's it's so- important. It, it is. And, and it's interesting. I live in this place, uh, it's a place right by, I'm, I'm actually right in between this place called Stillwater, which is yeah. this river town and it's got the main street and there are zero standard box franchise buildings. And and then it's Woodbury where like you name the big box shop. It's like there. Yeah. And, it, and it's so important, like you said, because it's the velocity of money. You want your dollar to go to the business owner that then goes to the employees who then spend it in the community. I mean, it's truly actually an economic, like the velocity behind money is so damn important. As you're growing, Gina, like, you know, you, you also started talking about, uh, I can't remember which blog it was, but it was like, you know, the three things, it was the trust and then local. And then it was like thinking about your exit strategy. Where along the lines did you start going? What do we do next? Like, you know, and why did you, did you ignore it for that, that thought for a while? And then when did it hit you in the face that you wanted to start exploring it? Well, I, I, you know, it's a really good question, Ryan, because the first question that people were asking is, where are you going to expand? And, and the second or third question was, what's your exit? I mean, I was like 36, year, 36 years old building a business and people were already saying, how are you going to get out? I'm like, what? what? And it wasn't hardware people because hardware people are lifers. Like those guys knew 
that when you opened a hardware business, you were gonna you were gonna be there until the very bitter end. And I hadn't been in hardware my whole life. I'd been in nonprofits and these tech companies, and so I never really thought about it as a lifelong business. Most leases for small businesses are ten years, and there's some options. And so Mark and I used to joke that we would open a store once a year for ten years, and then the leases would come due, and we'd close a store once a year. I mean, we realized in hindsight how stupid <laughs> yeah, that was. Like, yeah. <laughs> When Makes people sense. started saying, what is your exit? We would tongue in cheek respond with the 10 year strategy because I just thought at the time, why are, why are people asking me what my exit is when I'm you know so young and I'm still building this business? But I did realize probably, probably about 10 or 12 years in, and this is just as I become more, became more savvy as a business owner in general, that a lot of people don't plan their exit until it's too late or until it's too uncomfortable or too stressful. And I at least wanted to start thinking about it. I also get a little, I get bored fairly easily. And I would say, because I have such a strong team that truly does 98% of the work, I needed a purpose. (laughs) And if my Mm -hmm. purpose was to figure out the exit, I was going to do that earlier rather than later so that then my next purpose could unfold, whether it be, you know, speaking or writing or consult, whatever. I mean, I'm sitting on a beach. I have no idea yet, mm-hmm. but, you know, so it was probably, I mean, we're going on our 19th year, I guess. It was probably around year 12 or 13 that Mark and I seriously started talking about it. So what, where did those conversations lead you? What resources, what was kind of the, like the, the milestones of, of knowledge, you know, bricks, the foundational bricks that you were gathering along the way? Well, probably in its infancy, our first mentors were hardware store owners, our friends, our peers who were transitioning into the business from their parents. And so we started watching how that was working, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because we've seen it all at this point with familial transitions, which, I mean, you may know a little bit about, but um, (laughs) we don't have any children. And so the transition to our kids wasn't going to be a possibility. Our nieces and nephews are young. They live far away. That wasn't going to be a possibility. So then we, our first, our first um, conversations were, do we have a manager or an employee who we think we can transition the business to? which we never actually rolled out until kind of the bitter end when we decided to transfer it to all of the employees. And Mm -hmm. so we looked at that. We started talking to some folks who have um, sold to PE firms. Mm -hmm. Um, What does that look like? How does that feel? What are the pros and cons of that? Uh, Ace, Ace became the sole owner of the largest Ace chain. It's probably been... Interesting. So the co-op bought... So the co-op, yeah. So we had, um, it's Westlake Hardware. They started in like the Kansas City area. And when that business got big enough, they sold to a private equity firm. That was before the last recession. Um, And as you know, private equity firms typically want to keep their holdings for five to seven years and then they want to exit. Well, at that point, there was a real fear. They had grown so big. I think they were at 90 stores at that point. The fear was a competitor to Ace would swoop in and buy them. And we would lose a big chunk of revenue because they were such a big customer to the co-op. Yeah, so the board, um, the board resolved that we would we would use some of our profit, the, the members' profits, to buy that group of stores. So they have they have in a very interesting way acted as a roll up for stores that want to retire and don't have an exit. So they've purchased stores in order to fu- fuel their growth. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that. You know, would would we sell to Westlake? Would they want us? Would they want to be in an urban market with all the nuances that we have? Is there another local owner that has the appetite for growth? We eventually got to a size where we felt like it would be really hard to find a single owner in right. the hardware business who could just, you know, I, I guess. Wait I had the check or even do the seller financing or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right. Exactly. Our leases are all over the place. Yep. Yeah. Well, and what's, okay, so, so many interesting points of that is one, like, like the co-op of A's. I'm so like is was before that big 90 uh store roll up with the private equity firm which again i like that sound, sends alarm bells to me for like the co-op model and how how different the model of internal rates of return for the limited partners of the private equity firm that's their mandate period and yeah. it's so opposite than the co-op that they allowed that to happen so what in the like corporate docs or like whatever it might be to the ace franchise or not the franchise but the co-op like said what you guys should or shouldn't be doing for exit or transition plans i mean like did they have any say or thoughts in that no so prior there was nothing um absolutely nothing i mean we're independent businesses right so if you decide tomorrow you want to buy a chain of 13 hardware stores i have 70 percent that i could sell you um Mm -hmm. 
the rules changed after that transaction um, if an owner wants, wants to leverage money. So this is really interesting and it's been fantastic for our growth. So I told you that we get a dividend at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. That dividend mm-hmm. gets given back to retailers, the members, in the form of stock or cash. Okay. Um, this, the stock is the biggest portion. You get, get, you you, get to choose or do they, do they allocate? No, you don't get except, to choose. It's okay. like a you know, 60-40 split or whatever it okay. is, 70-30 split. Um, the stock piece stays in a fund. It's kind of, I call it a forced retirement fund. And you can't access that money historically till you die, sell, or close. So it just mm-hmm. sits there. And unlike stock on the stock market, it does not appreciate. Whatever it is when the day goes in is what it is 14 oh, years okay. from now. Yeah. So there was no way to unlock that value. And those of us that were growing needed better access to capital. And we were growing these buckets of money that was technically ours that we couldn't access. And so the board at that time, when I was on it, um, adopted a program whereas you could borrow against your stock. If I was you say were- margin loans. Here they come. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So we had the ability awesome. to take that stock money, use it to open a new store, and then pay ourselves back with our future stock money. That's fantastic. That's awesome. So to answer your question, once we put that into place, the documents, the membership documents changed. If we were going to borrow money from Ace, they were going to have first right of refusal to purchase the store. Okay. Doesn't mean sense. that they're going to, but it also could potentially take that private equity player off the market or a competitor off the market. If you've loaned, I mean, you have to have taken the money from Ace in the first place um, mm-hmm. for them to, you know, have. Actually, it might be an. I don't think it's in all the membership agreements now. I think it's only if we borrow that money. But regardless, there's a little more of a safeguard. Yeah. So then, um, super interesting. Um, When you were going through those different, like, you know, private equity versus internal transition, and that makes sense, too, as you got too big that someone's not going to, you know, not going to be able to structure the deal um, to the side, to the, the thing, the price that you need how did you like start viewing the valuations with the, each of the exits like did you start going okay like how are companies valued and like specifically ace did did the co-op and corporate have any kind of like you know baseline framework for you to make that decision then you're viewing like the different options and the prices that they were offering that's probably the hardest the biggest education i've had and i and i still feel like i don't understand it all i mean mark functions as our cfo and thank god he knows mm-hmm. the numbers and, and understands that stuff Everyone values things differently. Do we, are we valued based on revenue? Are we valued just based on assets? We have the nuances of the multiple leases. Does that devalue because they're all over the place and cause work, et cetera, and so on? Um, we've purchased of the, so we have one store that we had one store that, that did not work that we closed. Um, so we've had 14 over the last 19 years. Um, of the 14, we've purchased four. So we had a chance to experience firsthand how you value a business in decline, how you value a business bigger than any of our other locations. We worked with a third-party evaluator to give us their opinion. Obviously, the sellers always have an opinion and some sort of formula we ask them to to provide. Uh, And then just based on experience and what we know, the profitability will be in a high occupational, it's expensive to operate in the district. And so we always have to take that into into play. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's kind of all over the place. Well, Um, it it does. It does, Eugene, because that most people like there's no easy way and here here's like one of the myths that we've been trying to bust through is that oh well i only know what my company's worth when i decide to sell i'm like well that is ridiculous you, like you so you're never gonna know what your house is worth until you decide to put it on the market because right. like so there's wait and I'll, I'll give some context to this and then i'll actually I'll layer over the question with it because is that in our intentional growth principles there's five of them the first one is like what do you want and why personally and the second one is your financial targets and understanding your ideal income, annual income, your net worth, and then the value of the company while you own it. But if you're not going to sell, it has to be valued based on a, uh, the risk of your cash flow, essentially. And that's yeah. it. And, and until there might be a premium paid by, like, by Home Depot if they bought that from, you know, bought the 90s stores or a private equity firm that's got a different play that they're doing. But somehow it's got to start on this financial level that's just mechanical in nature. But my the question behind this is and more of like and maybe also common is that because it's so ambiguous, I, like I want every business owner to be able to go, I want this, this is what it's worth, and here are my options. And because of my culture and this and that or the other thing, I'm willing to forego the eight hundred grand premium on the strategic buyer than I would on something else. But quantifying what's important to them as it relates to the value. And it's hard to do that if you don't know what the things are worth. And it's People so are afraid just, to talk about it. Yeah, they're afraid to talk yeah. about it. 
Yeah. Right. Two of the stores that we purchased, um, the owners would not give us, they would not give us a sale price. They said, make me an offer, which <laughs> is one, incredibly frustrating and two, very stressful because you should know what your business is worth. And there are lots of formulas, right? I mean, it could be a multiple of EBITDA or it could be straight asset, but you, you can give us that number. You can say, okay, I've decided I'm going to value my, my business on three times EBITDA. And this is what that number is. Boom. You know what it is. But to say, make me an offer only puts us as the buyer in a position to one, be insulting, which right. we never want to do, right? Two, look like idiots, which we also don't want to do. Um, or three, over overshoot. Which still wouldn't work out because then you overpay and then you got to make it work after the deal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or the bank won't the bank won't fund the nope. loan. So um, it is it is very interesting how people are afraid to either one, do it, two, believe an outside evaluator, um, mm-hmm. or like go through those steps years in advance. Well, and going back to the the concept of what do you want with you in the business from the intangible personal side and then tying that to the financials, I think about this becomes more and more difficult for business owners that have specific core values. Like, I mean, your your hardware recovery and the things you're doing in your community to align all of those values with a buyer that's willing to pay the price that you want is almost damn near impossible sometimes. Impossible. And yep. so like, how did, how did you handle figuring that, that situation out along the journey? And then how did you start pulling on the thread of learning more about ESOPs? So for the, just to, for the four that we purchased, we eventually, you know, had an outside person give us a valuation and we said, take it or leave it. This is what we're mm-hmm. going to offer. Mm-hmm. But we could very specifically say, you know, this is a multiple of EBITDA assets, depending on the deal. Um, and so we felt very educated in our, in our approach to making that offer. So it wasn't just a, we're going to, you know, pay you X. Mm-hmm. Blank check. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's be realistic about it. So, so we were in the process of, of evaluating all these things and we went to New Belgium Brewery, which is in Fort Collins. It's a fat tire brand. And <laughs> I was there for a meeting with some ACE retailers, actually my peer group. And there was a young woman who gave us a tour and Ryan, she was bouncing off the walls. I mean, she was so excited to give us this tour, partially because she also got to tell us how she was an owner of that damn brewery. That's awesome. They were an ESOP. And they've, I think they sold a couple years ago. I think they actually did sell to private equity, but at the time they were an ESOP. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Mark and I left that day thinking, well, my God, if you can, inf- if you can infuse that kind of enthusiasm and the woman giving tours, what could we do with the, with our folks in the city? And Mark's first comment was, there's no way our team can afford it, which regardless of how short-sighted that might sound in some situations. Uh, I'd say it, there's got to be a lot of people that just, you know, nodded their head to what you said. Correct. Correct. And we just, we didn't understand how they worked at all. So we, we tabled it. We didn't, we didn't, whatever. And then I met Steve Sorkin um, on a panel and he was talking about the employee ownership exchange and ESOPs. And I came back to Mark and I said, I think we need to revisit this. And the very first question we asked was, how do the employees afford it? And he said, it doesn't cost them a dime. And honestly, <laughs> God, there was a checkbox for ESOPs. That was the first check that like sent us on our path yeah. to what got us to where we are today. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the employees don't have to pay a dime. And by the way, the company doesn't pay any taxes afterwards. No taxes. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Wait a second. Like, tell me more, right? I mean, you That's have to be kind magic. of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So describe the, you know, how long did the ESOP education process take you? I mean, like, and what were, were there any barriers for you and Mark that, that you had, you guys had to overcome? Um, so it took us, I think it was probably March or April, April of 2020 when we seriously started putting pen to paper and figuring out if it was going to work. Um, um, can, I mean, I, can I pause you there for a second? Yeah. So April, 2020, after the world shuts down, all the big box shops are still open while I don't yes. know whether you were mandated to shut down. So like nothing going on and you're just, you know, <laughs> hyper-focused on, on this ESOP thing, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was exactly like that, Ryan. Um, I went back to, I couldn't be a cashier. I was a runner. Um, we were considered essential and I'm, you know, so okay, grateful for that. And my team was so incredibly grateful for have to have a place to go. Um, and we don't need to dwell on COVID, but that mm-hmm. caused a whole lot of issues for a small business like mine. One very specific one, which people seem to find funny, no one opens an independent business with enough phone lines to handle a pandemic. So <laughs> the so phones, this was me with my headset on for the people who can't <laughs> see me. I was Judy. I was Judy answering the phone at the switchboard for like seven months at the same time trying to figure out how to plan these up. 
<laughs> That's awesome. That's that what helps. a great story. So yeah. other than that obstacle, what, what were some of the other things as you guys were talking about this, that were there any hurdles you guys had to mechanically overcome or some things that you thought were interesting? I don't think there were hurdles in, in terms of challenges. There's just hurdles in terms of the checklist. And so we had to make sure that um, all of our finances were aligned. We had to, all of our stores were independent LLCs. They had to be rolled up to, Mark would be so mad if I couldn't say S or C Corp, but we had to be rolled up into one company. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. had to find um, a bank that was willing to fund it. And this was perfect because National Cooperative Bank not only understands co-ops, but they understand ESOPs and they love Mark and I, and they're huge champions of ours. So they immediately jumped on board to be our funding partner. Um, And then we had to put together the team. So there's a team that an ESOP is comprised of, which is, you know, an outside consultant, an independent trustee who works on behalf of the employees, attorneys for that person. Attor- I mean, I can't tell you how many lawyers. We- <laughs> Everybody <laughs> had a lawyer. I think my dog had a lawyer. Um, so we had to put together that team, um, which wasn't hard. I mean, I think we, you know, there's very few people in the country that are really e- ESOP experts. Um, and they all seem to know each other, fortunately. So you can mm-hmm. you know, find the good and the bad out fairly quickly. And so we put together that team. I would say, so we closed on the ESOP deal. We told our team in July, so f- July of 2021. So that was the time frame. Wow. That, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty relatively fast time frame. And, and especially with all the other craziness going on, did you ever think twice to say, hey, like maybe there's a, well, I mean, if you're already borrowing money from Ace, I mean, maybe that, just the fact that they were the first right of refusal, but did you ever think like, hey, strategic buy or private equity firm, especially private equity in the last two years have just pounded on everybody's door that's got any kind of size of a company? Yeah, you know, we didn't because we love our team so much. I think it became so much more, particularly if you think about 2020 and all the civil and social unrest. So my office overlooks 14th Street and almost all of the protests that happened in Washington in 2020 marched right down my street. By your office. right, Right in front of my office. And we would all, we would, we would do two things. We would either essentially close the store and walk out on the sidewalk. We would invite our customers and staff to come walk out on the sidewalk with us so that we could participate in the protest if, if you wanted to, right? Which was mm-hmm. very impactful for our employees who really wanted to and felt like they were stuck in their job. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had customers, they felt the same way. They thought it was so cool when an associate would say, hey, I'm going to go stand in the street in solidarity. Do you want to come with me? So it was very moving for us as business owners. Or we would open our windows and we would like shout out the windows like, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. I always felt like I should have curlers in my hair. I don't know. I felt like one of those people on TV, like curlers in my hair, maybe a cigarette. Like, hey, I'm with you. Great picture. I love it. I love it. That was always my visual. Um, anyway, that made us even more aligned with the idea of an ESOP because we felt like if anything was going to help make a difference in income equality, social inequality, all of this crap that as a country we can't seem to figure out, the ESOP was an answer. And if if that was the small thing that Mark and I could try and do, and it mm-hmm. might not be, I mean, who knows? But that's what we were going to do. It is, uh, I, I mean, my listeners probably get sick of hearing me talk about it because it, and like, I have no vested interest other than the fact that like it mechanically works and it's a bipartisan like policy. I mean, the business owner doesn't pay or the business doesn't pay any taxes afterwards. And then the employees don't have to pay it. And the employees get rich after time. If everybody's growing value, I'm like, I mean, the inequality is like the biggest issue from our economic growth. And it just is amazing how it unlocks everything. And what I find interesting based on what you said at the beginning is like, so the co-op doesn't pay taxes on the dividends it gives you. And then the ESOP doesn't pay any taxes on those dividends. And then like, so the money just keeps rolling down. That's, that's, amazing. The, that's the plan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So what, how did your employees take it? And like, I mean, it's a complicated thing that you probably spent. A, I mean, listen to you talking about multiples of EBITDA and you were just a hardware, uh, hardware woman back only 19 years ago at a cashier. And so like you got there through almost two decades of hard work and learning and, you know, blood, sweat and tears. How did your employees react when you said, hey, we're doing this thing called an ESOP and you're an owner now? You know, the, the, react, the reaction was all over the board. I mean, we had absolute blank faces, like, what the hell is this woman talking about? We had, so we, we told our, our, our four key back office leaders first, and one of them immediately thought that Mark and I were leaving, like, that mm-hmm. month. And so we, we knew right away we had to nip that in the bud. Um, and so that was a helpful reaction from him because it just made it easier. The next group that we told was the 38 store managers and the back office team and assistant managers. 
And I gave them a speech. It was like 15 or 20 minutes, just like sort of, I asked them to indulge me in a little bit of history and walk them through the path. And I probably cried like four times. So I think they understood the emotion of how important it was with the caveat that I wasn't leaving right away. Um, Mm -hmm. I have some folks on my team who've worked at ESOPs before. And the next day we traveled around to all the locations to talk to all of the employees. And it was really cool to meet the ones that understood it because they were already helping the younger associates or newer associates understand what it is. It's a really weird concept. It also doesn't mean that you're automatically the boss or you're automatically making more money. There's so much of what it automatically doesn't mean that you have to try and explain what it does mean and what the value is, even though some people would wish that it was those other things, right? I mean, it's a long-term, yeah. slow play. Yep. Well, it's yeah. so interesting. Like, like you and I were talking about before we hit record that like through our training, I mean, hundreds of people that have gone through it are like, they, they gravitate in principle three to ESOS because they're there's so much bullshit out there about what it is and that it's not true. And like, you know, the only way I've said it, Gene, is like it mechanically puts zero more risk on the operations of your company than there was before because it's just a cap table ownership transition, not a management role, which is the big problem that so many people have is like they're burnt out. So they want to exit. They want to do an ESOP. And you're like, wait a second, you still have a sucky executive team and you don't have a strategic plan. Your finances suck. So like, by the way, it's not going to solve your burnt out misery. Like this is a ownership value equity transition and people don't get it. Yeah, they don't. Even, you know, Mark and I had to really sit down and discuss what our transition, because that it doesn't solve the transition plan for us. Um, Mm -hmm. It just solves the exit piece of it. Right. So how does that happen? And, and, and I was, I'm, I'm technically ready to retire. And he kept saying, you have to fire yourself. And we would argue about it sort of, I mean, we, we don't argue much, but he would say, just fire yourself. I'm like, well, first of all, that's not a logical response. What, what is the logic? <laughs> that's not a plan, Mark. Come on. <laughs> yes. Have you ever worked with a spouse? I mean, you know, you have uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, you know, so then we had a chance to say, well, okay, we need a new CEO in order for Gina to fire herself. How long is that going to take? What do we have to do before we hire a new CEO? Who helps? I mean, you know, so it's mm-hmm. all of those, you know, I call it the adulting that has to happen. I have to be the adult in the situation. Mark has to be the adult in the situation. No one else is going to do it for us. So then we could talk about what those steps are. And if we get to the end and we're successful and I want to announce to the world, I'm firing myself, then mm-hmm. I can do it and be like, you know, it, it, it can be a real thing. So are you, gonna, yeah. are you guys sit, Are you still planning on sitting on the board or like how, what's the. Maybe give it, get, maybe give a, a slight overview of like the board structure and like, cause you mentioned something that I think is super important to note that, you know, your cashiers aren't voting on whether you're going to acquire another building or, or another business or not. Like, so there's, there is a normal level of control that that's held. So maybe would you indulge us for a couple minutes? You know, so typically ESOPs will transition over time, depending on the access to capital and what the buyout has to be. And so we sold 30% first. Um, the business will pay that down over the next, how many, it could be 10 years, but hopefully it'll be more accelerated than that. And then the plan is to sell 19%. So we'll still have majority ownership um, by a couple percentage points. And then at that point, we will put together, um, we will have hired a CEO. We will put together an actual board that we will sit on because then the next step is selling that final 51% Mm -hmm. when we're completely gone. So it will probably be, I'm guessing five to six years before we Mm -hmm. get truly to that, that transition point. Um, Is there a reason you didn't do the the 100%? To begin with, because yeah, really, the, just the, we couldn't we couldn't get enough we, we couldn't get a big enough loan for the value of the business. Got it, got it. That makes a bunch of sense because you know, the the stat out there right now, I believe, is like ninety percent of ESOPs that are done go a hundred percent because wow. like yeah, and I hadn't and heard that. And it's, and again, this is going to be way more mechanical than most people want to care about. But like when you're just uh, in a, if you're a pastor entity and you're not a hundred percent ESOP. The, the the tax benefit, if you make distributions to yourself to pay your taxes, you have to make a distribution equal proportion to the ESOP because right. the ESOP is a par- partial owner. So what happens is people go like, okay, well, I don't want to have this idle money sitting there. Right. But it's just, it's interesting that you, um, and it, you know, but it works out great because it's like, it, it allows people to get that mindset to be marching towards a, a bigger goal too. What are your, what, what are your hopes for this like long-term? I mean, have you thought like, what, what do you, what do you think this can be? Well, I think interestingly enough, the pandemic increased awareness for small businesses. And so 
I was not necessarily at a point where I wanted to grow, but I think this could be a vehicle for growth for a team that's younger, more energetic, you know, ready to, um, to really tackle the next layer of the competitive landscape. So I hope that it's just a, I hope it's an opportunity for us to acquire more stores, open more locations, but more importantly for the consumer to understand that they need to continue to support main street and for us to be a viable a viable player. I mean, that's the thing that freaks me out the most that eventually people will just shop, stop shopping at any brick and mortar. And then, you know, what happens to my 300 teammates and what happens to the landlords that we're supporting and, you know, the trickle down. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my goal is that we transition out in the next five years or so to a professional management team that lives and breathes our values and wants to grow. You had mentioned that you get bored easy and you also need and are aware that you need a purpose how are you working on that topic as you're looking towards the, the horizon? Um, well, I got really fortunate. Um, several years ago, ACE started, um, it was called the ACE Center of Excellence, and it was a training institute within ACE where retailers, a couple retailers, um, were being paid to provide uh, keynote addresses and training around the country. Um, we have a, a fairly well-known uh, customer service philosophy, ACE does, and so you know other businesses wanted to hear about it. I was fortunate enough to be added to that roster. That program no longer exists, but what it essentially did was give me a foray into the National Speakers Bureau and a a bigger platform uh, from which to give presentations and speeches. And um, I really love that. Um, So I'm hoping to do more of that on a bigger level in the future. Uh, And then I started writing a book. So one of my teammates, I used to joke that I would call it from software to hardware if I ever wrote a book. And then one of my teammates said to me one day, you know, this business is called recovery hardware in the community. And I cried. I was so moved. And then I said, that needs to be the name of the damn book. So I am about three months from finishing it. Um, I really hope that not so much that it launches me for anything, but it just helps create more awareness for um, non-traditional hiring, a way to build back um, or build up businesses and main streets better through Mm -hmm. non-traditional hiring practices and more community-based growth. Um, so that's my plan. That's awesome. And, you know, I, and, and we will not go too far into this topic, but because everybody's talking about it right now is the labor shortages and yeah. people not coming back and especially more in the retail and the services base. I mean, how have you seen how your models like handling that compared to other people? Any, any couple thoughts on, on the situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's really challenging. And there's lots, I was interviewed by the New York times a week ago about, you know, is it a labor shortage? Is it a wage issue? Is it a, is it, I think it's everything truly. Is it a daycare issue? I mean, there's lots of research that says Amen to that. I'm in the middle of that crap. Exactly. It's a pain in the butt, right? And you probably have the luxury of working from home. Um, You don't have to be at a job because you're the cashier. Um, And so I think it's all of those things. We have um, historically been, really fortunate to be called a high road employer. We've always paid higher than minimum wage. We've advocated Mm -hmm. for an increase in the federal minimum wage. We've paid for benefits. Um, And I'm not saying any of that to brag. I'm just saying that we kept adding, you know, new quivers so that everything that was thrown at us, we had like a a counter as an employer Mm -hmm. that we hope Mm -hmm. would work. It doesn't always work. I mean, we still have, you know, turnover and all sorts of other things. Now we've added the ESOP as another quiver. So I think the the shortage for us has been, lesson. It's certainly not been as dramatic. Like I have friends that own restaurants that are closed half the time and, you know, mm-hmm. had to cut back on hours and what they do. We haven't had to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we feel it. I mean, I think across the 13 stores, we probably need 10 employees, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when that becomes, you know, 400 or 500 hours of labor a week, we feel it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, super helpful. And I, and like you said that the, the, the arrows in your quiver. I mean, it, yeah. you, like you say, <laughs> I love how you say it. it's, it's, it's everything. Arrows, yeah. And, oh, and I, I don't want, don't worry. I mess up. I, I mess up analogies all day long and I okay, actually said nice. the opposite <laughs> by accident. And they're like, I think you meant the opposite. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You, you understood what I meant, right? <laughs> you got it. Um, yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's, uh, there's a book called Think Again by Adam Grant. And he just says it, you know, things are not that simple. It's not binary. So like actually Saying it's complicated, actually, people go, "Yeah, you're right. It is. It's it not is. just like one thing. It's not the <laughs> the, the one it, answer yeah. that we always want to blame." But you know, this has been Gina so fun. Um, I love to ask uh, two questions to wrap up the call. One is, sure. "What does the word intentional mean to you?" For me, I mean, I know it's focused, but I'm not. I don't sit still. So for me, it's actually sitting down, 
you know, folding my hands and forcing myself to think about an actual rational answer decision plan to something. Awesome. And then if people want to find you, your speeches, the YouTube, your book, where, where do they find you? Um, so right now it's, it's ginashafer.com. It will eventually be recoveryhardware.com, but they can find me there. Um, same thing for LinkedIn. Um, Gina Schaefer is my, my real name. I mean, my name on LinkedIn um, <laughs> and then all of the stores, if anyone was interested in just the, you know, what the stores are doing or what they look like, they're all named after the neighborhood they're in, but they can go to acehardwaredc.com and they can get a list of the locations and just see some of the fun local stuff we do and how we, how we present our brand in the local market. Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for everything you're doing. It's, uh, I love it and um, I'm excited to watch the journey you're about to embark upon. Thank you. This has been great. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gina. I sure did. She is amazing. The fact that she was able to just integrate all the impact that she wanted to make into the business as she was growing it. So she could really just use her business as a vehicle for good, but she didn't have to sacrifice the wealth. That's what I absolutely love about the, the, the story that she has. And she's just really making a difference in a lot of different places while enjoying herself, while creating wealth. And I just, I, I think it's just a proof it's a great example and it's proof that conscious capitalism can be something that everybody can enjoy. It doesn't mean it's great for it doesn't mean it's right for everybody in their circumstances, but I think that if we focus on what we want long term by creating wealth, enjoying work and making an impact, if we have a long enough timeline, we can accomplish the things that we want to and not have it to sacrifice one of them. So many people think that you have to sacrifice the wealth if you want to make an impact or you can make an impact, but then you, you're you not going to be able to make a bunch of money or you make a bunch of money and you're going to have to sacrifice certain things as far as the impact that you want to make. And I just don't believe that's true. And it's proof through Gina's story that if you think about the long-term plan, the things that you want to do, and then march towards it and explore your options, what you want is possible and highly likely if you're going to march towards that focus. If you want to better understand and clarify like what you actually want from the business. What are the financial targets you need to measure and monitor? What is the value of your company now? What does it need to be for you to have the choices you want? Please go check out the intentional growth online training at arcona.io. The curriculum's on there and all the wisdom that Gina has. We're trying to accelerate that process for people so that way they don't have to learn over long periods of time what they want. They can get as focused and as intentional as fast as possible because the rest of the time should be executing the plan and getting you uh, towards those goals so that way you've, you're feeling progress every single year because I think that's the that's the main goal that we all want is that we're working towards something that we have identified as a goal that's worthy and notable for our lives. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Gina and make sure to stay tuned to next week. Thanks for everybody. See you.